Now, this morning in the message, I want to encourage you all to cheat. Now, that might surprise you, your pastor encouraging you to cheat. Uh, That's because, well, cheating has got some bad press lately. I mean, students who cheat on a test can get in trouble. Adults who cheat on their taxes, well, they can go to jail. Husbands who cheat on their wives, they can destroy their families. But did you know cheating can be a good thing? Did you know that? You see, when you cheat, you're making a choice. You're choosing to give up one thing in the hopes of gaining something else of greater value. For for instance, the student that cheats on the test is... Uh, choosing to give up her integrity in the hopes of getting a better grade. Or take a salesman. He is hoping um, to, you could say, give up his credibility in order to make a sale. So when you cheat, you're making a decision. It's a decision um, to give up something of importance in order to gain something of greater importance, and we do that every day, day in and day out, multiple times during the day. And for instance, uh, saying no to dessert is cheating your appetite uh, in favor of your health. See, that is cheating as a good thing. So, day in and day out, um, when you cheat, you're saying no to something of importance in order to gain something of greater importance. Now, when you read the Gospels, uh, you discover that Jesus had this uncanny ability to see through the fog of religious activity in order to focus on what was most important. In fact, in Mark chapter 5, we discover that Jesus has three separate encounters with the religious leaders. And in every one of those encounters, he's going to encourage them to cheat. He wants them to learn to cheat. In fact, the first encounter takes place as Jesus is leaving a banquet. In fact, turn with me to Mark 5, beginning in verse 33, and you can follow along with me. It says, and then they, meaning the Pharisees or religious leaders, said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when... The bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fa- and they will and they will fast in those days. Now, last week, if you remember, uh, Jesus shocked the religious establishment by attending a dinner party thrown for him by a tax collector named Levi. And Levi ended up inviting all of his tax collector friends to this dinner party. Now, you got to know, the tax collectors were despised among the Jewish population. Tax collectors were seen as traitors to the cause of Israel. In fact, tax collectors, harlots, and Samaritans were spoken of with equal hatred. 
So Jesus is attending this dinner party. Can you picture what that must have been like in your mind? I mean, it's a party. The place is full. I mean, Levi's place is packed. People, everybody sitting around tables, really reclining on low tables throughout the entire house. I mean, there's tons of food, lots of wine. I mean, it's a feast, and he's throwing it for his friends. You hear the sound of dishes and cups clanking together. There's murmurs of of conversations going on at every table, sudden outburst of laughter. Uh, different people stand up at different times and toast different things. And there Jesus is in the midst of it all, laughing and enjoying himself. Now, the Pharisees, they caught wind of this dinner party, and they were appalled that Jesus would associate with such despicable people is tax collectors. Now, you got to kind of picture in your mind what's going on. I picture the, the religious leaders purposely strolling by Levi's house, looking in the window, trying to see who's at the party, who's not at the party, what's going on. I mean, these guys aren't laughing. They're scowling. They aren't smiling. They're frowning. And so Jesus exits the party and they immediately confront them, front him with a question. Do you remember what it was? They said, why do your disciples or do the disciples of John fast and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. In other words, why aren't you obeying our traditions? Now, the Old Testament law required fasting uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement. In fact, the word fast is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew uh, word ana, and it literally means to afflict one's soul. That's interesting. Fasting was not just abstaining from food. It was a time of reflection, deep reflection, on your relationship with God and your sin before God. But these religious leaders uh, thought among themselves, golly, fasting just once a year, that's hardly enough. And so Judaism dictated, if you really love God, well, you'd fast at least twice a week. In fact, they determined the day of the week you were to fast. On Mondays and Thursdays, you were to fast. But, but that wasn't all. I mean, when these religious leaders fasted, they put on a show. I mean, they would go home and, and put on uh, torn, ragged, tattered clothes. They would muss their hair like they just woke up. They would go over to the fire and get some ash and put on the, and, whoa, put on their face to make themselves look pale. And then they would walk through the streets of the city with a big frown on their face as if to say, this is how dedicated I am. I am fasting. It was all for show. By the way, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. 
For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Now, Jesus was well acquainted with the religious traditions of the Pharisees. In fact, you could define religion as man's attempt to please God, or you could say appease God by your behavior, by your right actions. But Jesus knows they've missed the heart of his Father, so he wants to broaden their perspective. Notice what he says. And he said to them, can you make friends of the bridegroom, I'm sorry, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Uh, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they'll fast in those days. I mean, Jesus' answer is profound. He's basically saying, knowing my father is really more like a wedding than fasting. I mean, weddings were a time of celebration in the first century. Some of them lasted seven whole days of celebrating, of partying. They were joyous occasions. I mean, you attended a wedding as a way of rejoicing uh, and, and enjoying your relationship with the bride and the groom. I mean, if you've ever been to a family, family wedding, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I remember when my kids got married. I mean, I was so filled with excitement and joy and satisfaction. I mean, I was just overwhelmed with emotion. I I could hardly speak without wanting to burst into tears. Now, that was a problem because I was the one conducting the ceremony. (laughs) But I have found myself visited by those emotions every time I go to a wedding. It's a genuine time of celebration. So what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, guys, you don't get it. I mean, being in a relationship with my father is like the joy you get to experience in a wedding. In other words, he's telling them, guys, you've got to cheat. You have to cheat on religion in order to discover a relationship. A relationship that can only be characterized by the joy you get to experience in a wedding. But sadly, I mean, these religious leaders were so locked into their legalism, thinking that their obedience to their traditions somehow pleased God, that they missed the whole point of what Jesus was saying. Life with God is rooted in relationship. It's a sacred romance between you and God where he spends your entire life wooing your heart closer and closer to his. Maybe you're here this morning and you've found yourself feeling like you're jumping through religious hoops, trying to please God. Maybe it's your church attendance, thinking that your diligence there earns you favor with God. Or maybe you've got a sale pending. I mean, it's a sale that if if the guy signs the contract, it'll make your year. So... You get up early the next morning and you read your Bible in the hopes that your diligence somehow impresses God to land that sale for you. Trying to get God to work on your behalf. You know what that's called? 
That's Santa Claus theology. Yeah, Santa Claus theology, it's, it's God's watching, so you better behave. I mean, you know the song. You better watch out, you better not pout. You, I mean, you better not cry, you better not pout. I, I, I don't know the song now. <laughs> you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, he's making a list, and it's a long list. And he's checking it two, three, four times. I'm here to tell you, he knows who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, he knows when you've been sleeping. That's a little freaky. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so you better buck it up and get your behavior in line and be good for goodness sake. I mean, these Pharisees were caught up in their Santa Claus theology of all their religious traditions, so much so that they couldn't see or even comprehend a loving God wanting to engage them in a relationship from their heart. And if you find yourself there this morning, let me encourage you. Just set aside your religious activity. And ask God, would you show me your heart for me? Help me see it. And and, and if you must do something, pick up the Gospel of John, read it, maybe just one chapter a day for 21 days, not as a way to please God or appease Him or earn His favor, but as a way of discovery. And as you sit down to read that chapter, I encourage you to say, God, would you show me your affection toward me? And see what happens over those 21 days. You see, it's not about rules. It's about relationship. Then there's a second encounter beginning uh, in chapter 6. Look there. Now, it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields. His disciples were plucking heads of grain and ate them rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to to them, Why are you doing what is unlawful to do on the Sabbath? So apparently on the next Sabbath, Jesus is walking with his disciples through a field of grain. It happened to be grain that was ripe. And as the Pharisees passed by, they would break off heads of grain and they would rub them in their hands and then blow off the chaff, and then they would have a little seed snack. They were kind of enjoying themselves as they walked through the fields. Now, as they were walking through these fields, there were Pharisees watching them from a distance. I mean, what they were doing was breaking the law. According to Judaism, you were to do no work whatsoever on the Sabbath. And according to their laws in Judaism, they were, when they broke off the head of grain, well, that was harvesting. Uh, When when they rubbed it in their hand, that was considered threshing. And when they blew off the chaff, that was considered winnowing. And none of that 
was allowed, was appropriate on the Sabbath. None of it. Now, before we get too hard on the religious leaders, you might want to know that the Pharisee movement during Jesus' day began 200 years earlier by a group of laymen who loved the law and loved God from the heart and wanted to please him. And so they sought to bring every aspect of their life in line with the Old Testament law. And so as a result, over time, they established a body of tradition that defined right conduct in the eyes of God and prescribed application of that right conduct in every conceivable uh, area of life. Now, that was Judaism. That wasn't the Old Testament law. That was Judaism. The, the law gave laws that they were to obey. Judaism was different. It developed the application of that law. Now, for instance, the, the command about work. Uh, what they would do is take the one phrase, not even the whole commandment, but the one phrase found in the Ten Commandments, the fourth, that says you shall do no work. And these guys came up with 39 prohibitions that had to be obeyed in order to interpret that one little phrase. Now, the 39 prohibitions ended up being called the abhoth. It's a Hebrew word meaning parents or father. And then they added to the abhoth the total toledoth, uh, that means descendants. And there were six Toledos for every one Adhoth, making a total of 234 commands, defining that one little phrase that says, you shall do no work. Uh, let me give you a few examples. Uh, did you know on the Sabbath it was against the law to travel more than 3,000 feet from your home? If you went further than that, you were considered doing work. But if you had stored food at that 3,000-foot mark, then you had established a homestead, and now you go 3,000 more feet. So if you planned well before the Sabbath, when the Sabbath came, you could actually work your way all the way into town and back without breaking the law. Another law... You were not allowed, or you were allowed to throw something up in the air with your right hand. If you did that, you had to catch it with your right hand. Now, if you threw it up in the air and caught it with your left hand, that was considered work. Because the right hand was already up in the air and the left hand had to be raised to catch the ball, that was not allowed on the Sabbath. That was work. Uh, a tailor was not allowed to carry his needle. A scribe couldn't carry his pen with him. A student could not carry his books. Uh, on the Sabbath, nothing could be bought, nor could it be sold, nor could it be washed. Uh, also on the Sabbath, no fire could be lit, nor could a fire be put out. Now that created a problem because if your house caught fire on Saturday, the Sabbath, you had to let it burn. You couldn't put it out. On the Sabbath, cold water could be poured on hot water, but hot water couldn't be poured on cold. 
Now, can you imagine 234 commands defining work on the Sabbath? I mean, no wonder the Sabbath was the most oppressive day of the entire week. I mean, Judaism had turned life into something that was repressive and legalistic, legalistic, but Jesus wants to show these religious leaders how their legalism is so far from the heart of his father. So notice what he does in verse 3. And Jesus answered them, uh, saying, have you, not seen, have you not even read this, that what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. That's interesting. He tells them the story of David. Now, these Pharisees had heard the story of David, but apparently they had missed its significance. I mean, David was heir to the throne of Israel, but he was a fugitive. Uh, The present king of Israel, Saul, was seeking to take his life, so David had to run for his life. And according to 1 Samuel chapter 21, David finds himself in Nob, which happens to be the place where the tabernacle is located. So he finds the priest in charge of the tabernacle and he asks him, do you have anything that I can eat, me and my men? And the priest said, no, the only thing I have is the showbread that's in the temple or in the tabernacle. Now, every Sabbath, 12 new loaves of bread would be baked and those 12 loaves would be taken into the tabernacle and placed on the golden table that was located in the holy place. You see that on the screen. And the old bread was removed and given to the priest for them to consume. Now, the old bread was consecrated bread and only priests could eat it. But on this day, the priest gives six loaves of bread to David and his men uh, with his blessing. So why in the world does Jesus share that story with the religious leaders? Well, he wants to paint an accurate picture of the heart of God. He's saying, guys, you don't get it. Your traditions keep you from seeing the compassion, the grace, and the loving kindness of God. And he's telling them that they need to learn to cheat. In other words, to experience the heart of God, you've got to cheat on policy to focus on people. That's what will help you see the heart of God. Now, uh, in the book of Mark, it it talks about the same incident. And in in that account, Jesus also tells them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, meaning the Sabbath was there for man's benefit, not the other way around. And the Sabbath was designated as a day of rest. So once a week, they're to take a day off to rest, to renew, to refresh their body, their spirit, to refresh their relationships in the family, to take a nap, uh, to go out into creation. I mean, the Sabbath is there to show you the kindness of God toward his people. But it's at this point that Jesus drops a bomb. Look at verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. He was declaring to these Pharisees, I want you to know I'm in charge of the Sabbath, not you guys. 
Wouldn't you have liked to have seen the looks on their faces as he completed that statement? And then then there's a third encounter with the Pharisees. Look at verse 6. Now, it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was, was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. Now, it happens on another Sabbath, probably the next one following, that Jesus attends a synagogue. Apparently, he was asked to speak. And in the crowd, as he is speaking, is a man with a withered hand. Now, it it probably atrophied uh, due to paralysis brought about by injury or maybe some kind of sickness. But... Luke also tells us there were Pharisees in the crowd watching him closely. Now, these guys weren't casual observers. Uh, They were hoping that Jesus would be moved with compassion and heal this man's hand. Now, I do find it fascinating that the Pharisees knew Jesus to be a man of compassion. They also knew him... to have the power to heal sickness and disease. But they were so focused on people breaking their traditions, it just never occurs to them that Jesus might actually be Messiah. The very Messiah they had spent their whole lives praying would come. So, they hoped that Jesus would do a miracle. Not to help the man, not to prove he was Messiah, but that so, so they might condemn him for having broken their traditions. So, what does Jesus do? Well, he asks them a question. Now, it's a simple question, and this question really pulls back the curtain on the Pharisees' motives. Notice what he says. But he knew their thoughts. Now, that would be helpful. He knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise, stand here. And he arose and stood. And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy? So Jesus stops in the middle of his teaching and asked this man to step forward. You know why? He wants to make sure everybody in the room sees this man and his withered hand, but he also wants to make sure everybody's going to see the heart of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. So he asked, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy? Now, if they say uh, it's lawful to do good, then they've given Jesus permission to heal the man's hand. If they say it's unlawful, then they reveal their true motives that are hidden underneath their lives. I mean, the question's amazing. It forces them either to affirm Jesus or to condemn themselves. Notice what happens, verse 10. And when he had looked around at them, we talk about awkward pause. Silence. Nobody dared venture an answer. 
the tensions building in the wound, in the room. And then he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand," and he did so, and the hand was restored whole as the other. Now Jesus asked the man to do what was impossible: uh, open your hand. That's what "stretch out your hand" means. Just open your hand and. He does. Now, the interesting thing is that really no work was done. All the man did was open his hand. There was nothing in the Abhoth, the Toledoth, about the Sabbath that uh, stood against a man opening his hand on the Sabbath. In other words, in this simple demonstration, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, Guys, you've got to learn to cheat. You've got to learn to cheat your wants in order to focus on the needs of others. I want you to see the true heart of my Father. That's what He's like. Isn't that really true? I I don't know how many times I've gone to a small group or um, met with a couple who's going through marital difficulties or, or flown across country to speak at a family life weekend to remember... And I didn't want to go. I was thinking only of myself. I got so much to do. I don't have time for this. Golly, well, I'd love just to have this evening or this weekend free. Do I have to? P- Patty, do I have to go? Well, you are bringing the message, Doug. Oh, okay. I'll go. And so I go, and afterwards, almost every time, I'm glad I did. I mean, I got to see God work in this guy's life or in this marriage or I learned something through this situation or what they shared was encouraging. I got to see God in a new way. Now, that's what can happen when you get your eyes off yourself and focus it on the needs of others. You get to see God work. By the way, do you know who the real violators of the law are in the story? Now, you got to remember, the, the Pharisees did everything they could to obey the law and avoid working and on, on the Sabbath, avoid working on the Sabbath. And in an ironic twist, notice what Luke records in verse 11. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. I mean, do you see the irony? These guys, the very men who are careful not to work on the Sabbath, they end up working that very day on a plot to kill Jesus. The irony of it all. They see these Pharisees had created around themselves a, a bubble of religious behaviors and activities that they thought somehow brought them favor to God or brought them closer to God. But they discovered on the flip side, all it ends up producing is arrogance and spiritual pride. And it ends up insulating them from seeing the true heart of God. In fact, what I'd like to do is close with a piece written by a friend of mine, John Lynch, that I think reflects quite well the affection God has for you, the affection these religious leaders could not see. Here's what he said in this piece. It's God speaking. What if I told them who they are? What if I take away any fear of judgment, condemnation, and rejection? What if I tell them that I love them and will always love them and 
can't love them more than I love them right now, no matter what they've done, as much as I love my son, that there's nothing they can do to make my love go away. What if I told them that there are no lists? What if I told them that they were righteous with my righteousness? What, what if I told them they could, not, they could stop beating themselves up, that they could stop being so formal and stiff and jumpy around me? What if I told them that I was absolutely crazy about them? Uh, what if I told them that they could run to the ends of the earth and do the most unthinkable, horrible things, and when they come back, I'd receive them with tears and a party? What if I told them that if I'm their Savior, they're going to heaven? It's a done deal. What if I told them that they have a new nature, that they're saints, not saved sinners, who should now buck it up and be better if they're any kind of Christian after all I've done for, the, for you? But what if I told them that they shouldn't have to put on a mask, that it was really okay to be who they really are at this moment without all their junk, that they don't have to pretend they are close to me. I don't have to pretend how much they pray. I don't have to read their Bible so much, or do or don't. It doesn't matter. What if they didn't have to look over their shoulder for fear if things go too good that the other shoe's going to drop? What if they knew I'd never, ever use the word punish in relationship to them? What if they knew that when they messed up, I never get back at them? What if they were convinced that bad circumstances are not my way of evening the score for taking advantage of me? What if they knew that the basis of our friendship was not on how little they sin, but how much they let me love them? What if I told them they could hurt my heart, but I would never hurt theirs? What if I told them that well, I like Eric Clapton's music too. And the these and thous have also bugged me. And I never really liked the Christmas handbell thing with the white gloves. That they could open their eyes when they pray and still go to heaven. What if I told them that there's no secret agenda, no trap door? What if I told them it wasn't about their self-effort, but about allowing me to live my life through them? See, it's always been about relationship, not rules. You get the relationship right, the behavior just naturally follows. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this tender look at your heart. May, may this week be a week where we don't forget and you keep reminding us how much you want a connection with each of us. And Father, I ask you to continue to woo us close to your heart. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, now I want you to know that we at Horizon, uh, we want to be a place where people uh, find relationship, not, not religion. And, and if you like being a part of that and want to be a part of that, we have several places you can plug in and engage. Maybe you want to join a small group. 
Uh, in fact, the small groups over the next few weeks are going to be following this series. And the study guide is out in the uh, atrium. Pick one up as you leave. Or, or maybe you want to plug in by uh, volunteering somewhere. One of the best ways to get to know people at a church is to volunteer and work alongside them. Or maybe one way you can plug in is give so that we can continue to expand these facilities to give people a place to come and engage with God. You just take it before God. Ask Him what He would like you to do. And the little handout in your program may give you some guidelines. So I want to thank you for coming, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Goodbye.